is had witness born to them. By faith, we understand that the world have been framed by the word of God, so that what is seen has not been made out of things which appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he had witness born to him that he was righteous, God bearing witness in respect of his gift, and through it he being dead yet speaks. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found because God translated him, for he hath had witness born to him that before his translation he had been well-pleasing unto God. And without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that seek after him. By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household, through which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And that's by the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11, as you know from our earlier studies, is the Hall of Fame of Faith. We have numerous illustrations given to us of active, living faith which justifies God's people. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who need to exercise their faith actively, who need to demonstrate in the midst of a time of persecution, temptation to fall back, especially into Judaism, temptation to renounce Jesus Christ for all that he claimed to be. The author of Hebrews writes to them to exhort them but they must not do this. They must not fall back. They must persevere and press ahead in faith. And so he now sets before them the examples of faith in the Old Testament, having told us about this one characteristic in particular, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. Last week we looked at verse 3, which begins at the Old Testament narrative with the creation account. And reminds us that it's by faith that we believe these things about the creation of the world. I reminded you last week that it is in light of that faith in God's creative power and the actual act of creation that we read of in Scripture that the Old Testament saints were able to perform the feats that they did. But we're going to begin to see tonight, and it will become even more clear in future lessons about Abraham and Moses and others, that the faith of which the author speaks in Hebrews 11 and stresses in verse 1 is a faith and conviction about things not seen, particularly a faith about things not seen because the promises of God have not yet been fulfilled. During the Old Testament period, the fulfillment of the gospel promises was still future. And yet, the Old Testament saints embraced these promises from afar. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is going to be an important feature of the chapter which in many moralistic lessons that are drawn from Hebrews 11, I think misses a crucial point that acting in faith is a matter of trusting God's promises about what he will do, that he'll keep his word, even though as yet we can't see it happening. I'm going to call on you throughout tonight's lesson, and I'll begin tonight at the very start, to uh, examine your own life and say, what things has God promised to do? That if I believed and trusted him, I'd obey him more purely, more consistently and cheerfully about. And yet, I haven't been acting that way because I don't see it happening. That is, in what areas are we saying we want to live by sight rather than by faith? Those words are easy to recite, much harder to live by. And I find uh, in my life, uh, I had another experience of that just this morning in my personal devotions, just repeatedly catching myself judging or adjusting, I should say, my feelings and attitudes for things in my life based on what I can see rather than on what God has promised. It's the constant faith, I mean, fight of the Christian life to live by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not yet seen. And yet, because we believe God, we'll be true to his word. We do what he tells us to do. So let's take three examples of this. The three that we'll try to get through tonight are Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Uh, three primary examples before the patriarchs are taken up in verse 8, beginning with Abraham. And, of course, a great deal of time is spent on the patriarchs all the way down to, what, about uh, verse 23, where we get to Moses finally. Tonight we'll just focus on verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, beginning with Abel at the fourth verse, where we read, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he had witness borne to him that he was righteous, God bearing witness in respect of his gifts, and through it he being dead, yet speaketh. We read of Abel in Genesis, the fourth chapter. You hopefully will know the story of Abel. Cain and Abel being the first children born to the human race, Adam and Eve being created, uh, created directly by God, had children, and they had two sons in particular, Cain and Abel. The Bible teaches us in Genesis 4 that Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. It teaches us that Cain was a tiller of the ground, a farmer. So we have a shepherd and a farmer, and each one of these brought an offering to God from his labors. Since Abel was a shepherd, he brought an animal sacrifice, an offering, and Cain, being a farmer, brought something that had grown in the ground, brought a uh, fruit or vegetable offering to God. The Bible teaches us that one offering was acceptable to God and the other was not. And when Cain found that his offering was not acceptable to God but his brother's was, rose up in fury against his righteous brother and slew him. God then confronts Cain, doesn't he? And says, where is your brother? And of course, one of the most famous retorts in all of the Bible, sinful in its intent, was, am I my brother's keeper? 
And God said, the blood of your brother calls out for vengeance from the ground. And uh, Cain is cursed of God, and I won't bother the rest of the story with Cain. Let's get back to Abel. Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable? I'm going to let you interact with me here. This doesn't have to be a lecture thing. Okay? I, I don't really know that Okay, that is one of the major interpretations that have been offered, and it's very popular. Uh, John Owen, uh, no less a scholar, and a Reformed scholar than John Owen, proposed that that is exactly what was going on here. I'll elaborate on that in a minute. Thank you for that. Terry? Okay, and that's going to be one... I, that's going to be very close to what I think is actually the answer, that in fact what made his offering acceptable was the offerer in the condition of his heart, not at all what he offered. But let's go through some others. Any other ideas that you've heard before? Willie? What the nice thing about this is that if you do the scholarly research and write down all the possibilities here, it turns out you all have heard in one way or another some of these. We're covering the ground real well. There are a couple of others that are uh, possible interpretations. No, no one else has anything else they've heard or thought about? What's that? Yes, and that would go along with the idea that the reason his sacrifice is acceptable is because of his own heart and condition rather than the nature of the sacrifice itself. Okay. I've heard also that Cain's sacrifice uh, was from the fruit of his own labor and how that correlates perhaps to his sacrifice is able to come up of uh, that was God's You know what I appreciate? the faces that you're making as you hear that. It's funny, a number of people are going, eh, come on. You know what happens? When the Bible says very little about things, we get maximal interpretations out of it. People love because they have to fill in the gaps, they think. And so, you're right, I have heard that as well, that you have to start looking almost for allegorical explanations of these things. Anything else you want to offer before I run through a few, Bob? Right, and um, if we are right, and what I'm going to propose is that if the attitude is heart, that would tend to suggest that after the fact, someone who wanted to resist the interpretation would say, well, the sin crouching at the door of his heart had to do with his attitude after being rejected, not so much the attitude that led to his rejection. So that's what we call a gestalt-filling argument in logic. If you already agree with the interpretation, that will go nicely along with it, but it's not the sort of thing that could budge someone from another interpretation. They say, well, that's after the fact, not before it. Okay, first of all, you need one that you missed, which is kind of humorous, I think, and it's based on a literal reading of the, of the Greek here in Hebrews 11, as a matter of fact, is that the reason able sacrifice or offering, I keep saying sacrifice and interchanging with that offering, there is a technical difference. The difference is that um, uh, able was of a greater quantity than was Cain. 
By faith, Abel offered unto God, my translation says, a more excellent sacrifice. The Greek literally says, more of a sacrifice. Okay, that isn't at all what it means, and I can give you the same sort of thing in, let me see, Matthew 5, where our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, that doesn't mean the scribes and Pharisees have a little bit of righteousness, and then we've got to get a whole bunch of righteousness. It means what we deem qualitatively righteousness must go beyond what they deem as righteousness. But some people taking it very literally have said, well, there was more bulk in the offering. And it's kind of like God is some immature child at Christmas, you know, who thinks more presents, you know, and that makes, you know, you a better parent or something. So I don't buy this. And you don't have to interpret the Greek that way. Another one which begins to look plausible until you think about it is uh, in Genesis we read that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and Cain brought of the fruits of the ground. Now the emphasis on firstlings would suggest um, the firstborn uh, at the very outset of his success he honors God whereas that is instead of uh, Cain and consequently he probably brought after he had taken for himself the best what was left over for God. Uh, David Arnold is enjoying this. What kind of argument or fallacy is that, David? From silence, exactly. Though it does say that uh, Abel brought of the firstlings, that does not prove that Cain did not bring of the first fruits or the firstborn of his uh, flock. Another one that you didn't mention that you might is that God is more pleased with animal flesh than he is with fruit. Some people have said that. Because in Genesis it stresses that Abel brought the fat. And in the Old Testament law, if you read the laws of sacrifice, you find that's the one thing you never can touch. God always reserves the fat of the sacrifice for himself. So some have said God is, is happier with animal fat than he is with fruits and vegetables. Well, of course, the problem is in the Mosaic Law, he also commands fruit and vegetable offerings, and so I don't think that's an uh, interpretation we can stick with. Then one that has ha enjoyed a lot of success and probably has much to say for it because it's true at least later in the Old Testament, and that's that bloodshedding for sin atonement is necessary. And what made uh, Abel sacrifice acceptable, here now I'm not using offering, but sacrifice, is that he was atoning for his sin, and there has to be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so, bringing an animal offering, he sheds blood. Whereas, you bring carrots or apples or something, there's no shedding of blood. And so, this is what makes it acceptable. Cain saw God as the creator. He's a farmer. God creates and is providential and things grow. Abel goes beyond this and sees God as the Redeemer, that there must be a life substituted for a life before we're acceptable to God. And as I say, John Owen argued this quite eloquently. Uh, but I know, I think that the persuasiveness of this comes from what we learn later in the Old Testament. It comes because we know the Mosaic system of sin atonement and animal sacrifice. There is no justification for that earlier in the Bible. Now, the comeback for that, and you'll have to consider whether it's persuasive to you, is, well, certainly what was introduced to Moses was not some brand new idea, and that God, if nothing else, through 
his revelation to earlier men uh, had that general word out and uh, it's just solidified, clarified, and elaborated upon in, in the Mosaic Law. Well, you could say that. The problem is we're always in trouble as theologians when we read things back into the text. We take something we know later then read it back into the text, which I differentiate from reading later what in, under inspiration someone said about an earlier time. Okay, so then what is it? Well, uh, yes. Right. 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 And others, uh, I think we talked about that in Sunday school not too long ago. Some have proposed that God used animal skins, and the reason he did is because there had to be, you know, the shedding of blood. Um, the one embarrassing problem with that interpretation is that there's no suggestion that the clothes worn by Adam and Eve were atoning, and therefore the need for the shedding of blood um, just is not part of the text itself. They are ashamed, and that shame must be covered, but that they have atoned for their sins by wearing these clothes is is not there. We get a lot more allegory than we do exegesis in a case like that. Well, I do think that the Genesis account, and then bolstered by what we read in Hebrews, tells us it's really the attitude of heart or the person of Abel that made his offering acceptable rather than the nature of his offering making him acceptable. Think about that. We have the person of Abel and we have the offering he made. And you have to ask yourself, does God's view of Abel as a person make his offering acceptable, or does Abel's offering make him personally acceptable before God? Which way does it work? Well, in Genesis 4.4, turn back in your Bible and see how it's presented to us in the earliest account. In Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Jehovah had respect, notice this, unto Abel and to his offering. I want to suggest to you that the Hebrew itself, without allegory, without reading back into it, without some kind of fancy interpretation, without reading between the lines, tells you that the offering was acceptable because first Abel was acceptable. In which case, and I know that those who propose some of these other interpretations would be horrified, but I want to suggest to you that had Abel offered carrots and apples, they would have been acceptable to God because it was Abel who was accepted and therefore his offering. Okay? And Abel, he also brought of the persons of his flock and of the fat thereof, and Jehovah had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very angry. Okay, let's go back to Hebrews and see if this interpretation is not what the author of Hebrews is trying to draw out. He says, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he had witness born to him that he was righteous, God bearing witness in respect of his gift. It was in respect of his gift. It's in the acceptance of his gift that God bore witness that Abel was righteous. So it's not as though Abel hit the jackpot. It's kind of like, what is God going to want from us? I got it right, therefore I'm acceptable. No. It's that the acceptance of his gift was God's testimony 
that Abel was righteous. And, like, and how did Abel gain that righteousness? Because he made a better stew? Because he had a nicer gift? No. By faith, he did this. It was through his faith that Abel received approval as righteous. And so what the author ends up telling us, if you draw all these phrases together, is that he was justified by faith. What is justification? It is God's bearing witness to our righteousness. We like to say it is the declaration of righteousness. To justify is to declare righteous. And that's what Abel had happened for him. Through which he had witness borne to him that he was righteous. Through what now? Through faith. Through the faith that led him to offer this gift with the heart that he did. God bore witness then to his righteousness. Hebrews 10, verses 38 and 39. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of our lives, or to the saving of the soul, depending on your translation. And so the author, having just said that, goes down a few verses, and he says, now Abel illustrates that. We are justified, we have our righteousness declared by faith. Does everyone understand that? Does everyone see how important that? I mean, that's the crucial New Testament doctrine, right? Protestant Reformation. That was the crux of it. Justification by faith. Abel's the first illustration of it. But I want to draw something more out of it than just that, which, of course, I would never minimize the importance of that doctrine. But let's go beyond. Despite all appearances to the contrary, Abel was acceptable to God. This is what you have to pick up on because, you know, if you look at this only in temporal or human terms, Abel was the loser. Cain was the winner. We think that way, right? When the righteous are put down, persecuted, eliminated, gotten out of the way, in worldly terms it appears that they're losers. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. For a while it must have appeared that Clearly, he was a criminal, rejected of men, found guilty, crucified, one of the worst, humiliating as well as agonizing deaths possible. It appeared that the righteous, it appeared that those who underwent such things were not righteous. But despite all appearances to the contrary, his being unjustly slain, Abel was the approved one, approved of God. And it's much more important that we be approved of God than that the appearances in our lifetime would vindicate us. This theme of despite appearances or despite present conditions is a crucial one in this chapter on faith. If you think about it, the author says in verse 13, all these died in faith not having received the promises. It doesn't appear outwardly that God's promises came true, that the righteous are upheld, that they have these things fulfilled. And yet God is true to them. And living in faith is primarily tested when the appearances go contrary to our being approved and enjoying the promises of God. Elry?
Yeah, there is a prevalent biblical theme that God raises up those who are, in worldly terms, less powerful or important. He takes the younger to rule over the elder. He takes the weak to rule over the strong. He makes the foolish to rule over the wise. And we see that, of course, Paul, I'm summarizing Paul, aren't I? He brings this in 1 Corinthians 1 especially. He takes the despised things of the world that the world doesn't believe are really important and they count a lot with him. Yeah, that, that's an important thing that could be developed and um, worthy of mention in terms of Abel. But the point that I'm trying to drive at is simply that our vindication and our approval before God is not to be judged by others or by us in terms of outward worldly terms. Living by faith often means living contrary to what might appear to be the best way in the world and the most approved way in the world. Now, how did God bear witness that he accepted Abel's gifts? How did Abel know that his gifts were accepted? Or better, how did Cain know that Abel's were accepted and his weren't? Well, an ancient Jewish tradition that was accepted in the early church, it's mentioned repeatedly, and even worked its way into the Koran, said that consuming fire came down from heaven and consumed um, Abel's offering, but not Cain's, and that's how they knew the difference. Of course, in the case of Elijah, that's true, and at the dedication of the temple, that was true, consuming fire came down, took the sacrifice. However, Scripture is silent on this point, and we should be too. We don't know how it happened. And uh, I, I would warn us, again, where minimal evidence is found not to have maximal interpretation. Okay, although Abel died, he nevertheless speaks, the Bible tells us. It's one of the, I think, one of the nicest verses in the New Testament. And through it, he being dead, yet speaks. And through his faith, though he is dead, he's speaking to us today. Some have thought, because God said that the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, that that's a reference to that, that though he is dead, he is speaking, crying out for vengeance. In Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, we read of the souls of the martyrs crying out for vengeance around the altar of God, that God would vindicate them. And in this sense, you might turn to Hebrews 12:24 for an interesting contrast, because there we read, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. It is certainly true that the blood of Abel called out for vindication, but the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that. And of course, what does the blood of Jesus speak? It speaks of reconciliation, expiation, propitiation. The blood of Jesus speaks of salvation rather than condemnation and judgment. Others have said that Abel is yet speaking because his blood cries out to God to accomplish reconciliation, not between God and men, but calls out that reconciliation would be um, established between men and men. I mean, after all, here is this first murder in history, and his blood cries out that a way of redemption would be found that would change the hearts of men and help them to live at peace with one another. My own view of the matter is that the author is not referring to the blood of Abel crying out, but the faith of Abel crying out. And through it, 
his blood not being mentioned here, through it he yet speaks to us. Even though he's long ago been dead, Abel's example of faith still speaks to us and sets uh, an example for us. And then we come to verse 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found because God translated him. For he hath had witness born to him that before his translation he had been well-pleasing unto God. Do we know a lot more about Enoch than we do about Abel? No, and so what do you think? I mean, in this case, the Jewish Apocrypha just goes berserko. I mean, you read great things about Enoch, all sorts of elaborations and additions and so forth. And again, I just warn you that when the Bible doesn't support these things, human imagination can hardly help. We do know this. Enoch was the son of a fellow by the name of Jared, and he was the father of a very famous person. Someone make my day. Enoch was the father of whom? Methuselah, right, who was the oldest man that ever lived. How old was Enoch, however? Five years younger? <laughs> okay. How many, how how many years was Enoch? This is easy to remember. Three hundred and sixty-five. Yeah. Now notice that I was being very careful that I didn't say how old was he when he died, because he didn't die. How old was he when he was taken? When he was raptured? 365 years. You remember that because, of course, that's a year, isn't it? He walked with God, Genesis says, and he was not, for God took him. This may surprise you, but uh, some scholars, Jewish and Christian, well, professing Christian, have tried to argue that Genesis does not mean that he was raptured. God took him means that he died a premature death. Only problem with that, of course, is that premature death is never a mark of God's blessing in the Old Testament, and so it's hard to believe that's what's being presented. That God took him, God took him, we read, because he walked with God. Isn't that a beautiful expression? He walked with God. Who else walked with God? Adam walked with God in the garden. One has literary suggestions made, the illusion, I think, is that Enoch came as close as any man ever did to enjoying that pre-fall fellowship that Adam did when he walked with God. He was not an unfallen man. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that because he lived so intensely a life of faith and righteousness, that he walked with God with the sweetness and intimacy of communion that reminds us that Adam himself did. And so what did God do? He just took him. It means he did not have to go through the experience of death. Well, some people have trouble with that. They say, well, now how can that be? Well, let me remember. I mean, let me remind you so you'll remember that, in a sense, Enoch is the prototype of what those who are alive when Christ returns will go through. They, too, will be caught up before God without going through the experience of physical death. There is one other thing we know about Enoch from the New Testament. Uh, because of time, I won't wait a long time, but does anyone know? The book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, tells us, that's right, he was a prophet, prophet of judgment. 
And again, it's exactly what that means. What? Yeah. He lived in a time where the righteous lived long lives, his son, the longest. But you have to remember that it's after, or at least at the very end, the uh, of the life of Methuselah, that what takes place. Anyone do their Old Testament chronology? The flood. That's right. Some critical, I've already told you, some scholars have tried to argue Genesis doesn't mean that he um, failed to die, but um, if he didn't, uh, if, if the book doesn't mean that he died, it's questionable that um, in the genealogies, he lived so many years and he died, he lived so many years and he died, this expression, it's very funny that in Enoch's case we don't have, and he died, the only one where that's the case. God took him. Now, the author of Hebrews clearly understood Genesis that way, though, and I would follow the author of Hebrews rather than these critical scholars, if I were you. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. God suddenly and supernaturally removed him from this earthly existence and exalted him without first passing through the experience of death. One other Old Testament saint enjoyed that same blessing. You know, Elijah, exactly, who was caught up in a chariot of fire. Right. That must have been a marvelous scene, too. It's not uh, really surprising, then, that in Jewish speculation, and then in some Christian speculation, it was thought that both Enoch and Elijah would return before the end of the age uh, as uh, precursors of the Messianic era and so forth. The life of faith is the one which is well-pleasing to God, and that's what we're supposed to learn from Enoch's experience. All the other speculation aside, we read that even before his removal, he was found well-pleasing to God because of faith. By faith, he was translated that he should not see death, and he was not found because God translated him. For he had witness borne to him before his translation that he had been well-pleasing unto God. How? How? We, you look in vain for some work that he did. By faith, he was well-pleasing to God. As the narrative of man's fall into sin indicates, if you do not trust God, you cannot please him by obedience. I would, if you're taking notes, that may be the most important sentence that's going to be uttered tonight. If you do not trust God, you cannot please him by obedience. First, the Jews, that's exactly what Paul indicts them for in Romans 9 and 10. And also 4 and 5, and Hebrews chapter 3 and 3 and 4, that repeatedly they tried to obey God apart from faith. That always becomes works righteousness. And trusting yourself that you do it right. True obedience rises from a heart of faith. It's because I trust God that I don't steal. It's because I trust God that I don't revile people. It's because I trust God that I live a life of obedience in all these respects. How can I love my neighbor as myself? I might get hurt. He might turn against me. You can only do it, what? Trusting God. How can I um, not retaliate when people do me wrong? If I trust God. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And on and on we can go with every commandment imaginable. If you stop and think about it, you don't really obey God unless your obedience is a testimony to the fact that you trust God so you don't have to take it into your own hands. That's what this chapter is about, trusting God in that way. In the account of the fall of man into sin, Adam and Eve, Eve first, women have to take the blame for this one, Eve first didn't trust that God meant well by that prohibition. What did Satan say? He knows that you'll become like him. That's why he told you this. Eve should have said, I trust him too much to believe that. But she didn't trust him. And because she didn't trust him, she questioned his goodness. And when you question the goodness of God, is God really being good to me? You know what happens? You know one of the worst things that happens when we start pitying ourselves? We pity ourselves because we don't think God's being good enough to us. And if God's not being good enough to us, then we deny his truth. That's what Eve did. Well, it's not true that we will surely die. And then she failed to trust his promises. A lack of faith brought rebellion against the authority of God, and not just in the account of the fall, but even today, when people lack faith and rebel against God's authority, they end up behaving as though he was not there. We act as though we're without God in this world. And you know what? Ephesians 2.12 says, therefore, without hope. It all runs together. Faith, love, hope, Obedience. They're all part and parcel of the heart of trusting God. And so verse 6 states the general principle that we learn from Enoch's life. Without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek after him. J. Gresham Machen used to love to use Hebrews 11.6. I don't know how many times I've read in this literature how this became um, the point that he wanted to make against the modernist conception of faith. Modernist conception of faith was something that had no content. It was an emotional experience. What we today might call faith in faith itself. Machen said, you notice here that faith, however, must have an object, God. And more than that, it can't be a barren thing just that a God exists. It must have, there must be faith about the living and true God and the kind of God he is, the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. To approach God, we must both believe that he exists, we must believe what he is like. Now I'm going to ask you real quickly a question about this God being a rewarder of them that seek after him. Does that mean that God counts our merit and rewards us for it? Because he's the rewarder of them that seek after him. Can you think of a real quick way in which you could disabuse someone of that idea, David? That's right. If we seek after him, it's because he has put it in our hearts to do so. Second Corinthians 4, 7 is a verse that I think would be like Ephesians. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast? And so if you do seek after him and he rewards you, remember that you have nothing that's being rewarded that he didn't first give you in the first place. And that all the more stresses the grace of God, doesn't it? Because we think of God being good to give us this as a reward, but it turns out it's the reward of what? The work he's doing in our lives. 
And so it's gift upon gift, grace upon grace, that we magnify here. Well, I know the time's getting short, and so I'll quickly look at just the verse 7, the last illustration, by faith Noah. By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning things not yet, excuse me, not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household, through which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In Genesis 6, 9, we read the Old Testament evaluation of Noah in the eyes of God. Genesis, the sixth chapter, at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Harmonious fellowship with God. Ezekiel, the 14th chapter, stresses Noah was a righteous man. 2 Peter 2, 5 says he was a preacher of righteousness. In 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, we read that God through Noah called his generation to repentance. So, here's Noah, a man who was called to make an ark and preach to his generation that they should repent. How long did he preach? Right, I think it's 120 years. That's a long time. I've been working in the church about 20 years now, and uh, I get worn out. Noah preached for all over 100 years, and you know how many people he saw in the church growth movement of his day? Zero. And the Bible says he was a preacher commendation of God upon him that he didn't look at statistics to govern his evaluation of his ministry. Hard thing not to do. I'll be the first to confess that, although I know that you're not supposed to do that. Our fleshly temptation is to say, look at this, look at that, you know. Noah had no outward indications that things were going all right. How long would you put up with your generation ridiculing you? You know when Noah was building this boat? in the desert. <laughs> People are going, right, Noah. There's going to be a lot of water, huh, Noah? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the first few times, Noah probably had, you know, it was easy enough to say, God told me it's going to be so and keep on working. You think after six months, he might say, oh, even there's something to think about there. After a year, he's probably getting tired of this ridicule. A hundred years of preaching. No one believes him. Noah's was a righteousness that came by faith. You know? It didn't come by sight. Nothing around him suggested his hypothesis. Nothing. He was a fool building this huge boat the size of the Queen Mary in the desert. By faith, Noah being warned of God concerning things not yet seen. Go back to verse 1. Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. God said it. And though Noah had no reason to believe it based on what he saw, he believed it. And he preached it. Fervently, consistently, persevered in preaching these things. 
He preached about events as yet not seen. Um, we're close to when we should end. That is a good note to end on. Think of Noah preaching all those years, having no support, you know, that a lot of people rallied around him and said, Noah, you're an okay guy. Keep believing it. Had his little household. By the way, that is a note I was going to elaborate on, but I'm out of time. Note the emphasis on household salvation here. That for the sake of Noah's leadership, his household was saved through the flood. The reason I want to end on this note, I think, because Matthew 24 suggests, doesn't suggest the teachers, that when Jesus returns, it's going to be just like that. That is, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, entering into marriage. I don't know how many times I've heard people elaborate on that as what a wicked age they were eating and drinking, <laughs> entering into marriage. And I look at that and I say, wait a minute. Eating and drinking and getting married are good things, according to the Bible. First, if you're some monk or have some, you know, Romanist approach to life, you might believe that eating and drinking and enjoying marriage are bad. But the point of the Bible, the point of Jesus' teaching, is not that it was a terribly wicked age. It may well be, but I'm saying that verse is not saying it was terribly wicked. It was an age that just lived life as though it would go on and on and on, eating, drinking, entering into marriage. Just like the generation of Noah said, yeah, Noah, a big flood, uh-huh, sure. And there will be scoffers in the day that Jesus returns, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Sure. After all these years, just look how things go on as usual. The uniformitarian principle, nothing has changed since the, the creation of the world but that changed mightily in the day that it began to rain. Bill Cosby, you know, has, he's been around a long time, has many more routines, but I remember early on when he was getting popular, one of the funniest routines Cosby had was the takeoff of Noah. You know, and though he was making light of the story, even, I, don't, I, I doubt that Cosby's a believer, but that's not my point here, um, even in his... Um, being disinterested in preaching the truth of the Bible, whether he believed it or not. In the humor that he gave, he caught the point. All these people were making fun of Noah and Cosby as this thing where they're going on and on, and then the first drops of rain fall on their face. The day is going to come when everyone around you is going to say, you fool, how can you believe Jesus is going to return? How can you live and believe these things that are not yet seen. And you need to remember that in some cases, in many cases, the only thing that's going to convince people is the drops of rain on their face. And then it'll be too late. But then it'll be too late for you to say, Oh, I really believe it now, God. I want to obey you. God is pleased when, without the outward evidence of sight, we live actively in faith, trusting that what he said is true, though we don't yet see it. Contrary to appearances, the righteous will be vindicated, will be found approved of God, and his promises fulfilled in their lives. Let's pray. Lord, make us men and women who live genuinely, actively, consistently by faith. Help us 
to be those that realize that outward circumstances are not all we should judge by, and in terms of obedience to you, are really irrelevant to how we should judge. We should simply hear what you have to say, and believing that you are true, live accordingly. Lord, we are stirred by the marvelous examples of faith of which we read in the Scripture. But I do pray that you would keep me, Father, and those who are hearing me tonight from thinking that these examples are something beyond us, something set on a shelf or in a, in a, in a hallmark of fame, and not something for us to do as well. And though we may not be remembered as Abel was, though we may die and not yet speak to others, you call us to live the same life of faith. And you may not call us, we recognize, Father, to do it in grand and glorious ways. It may be in very trivial, menial ways that may not even be recognized by anyone except you. And yet, because we live to please you and we believe that you exist and that you reward those who diligently seek you, we wish in all of our areas of life to live in a trusting way. Give us joy in doing that, Father. Help us to know that this is what rejoices your heart, that we look to you and not to the things in this world to gain our confidence. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ live in that faith, knowing that if he should obey you even to the bitter end of a criminal's death, you would yet vindicate him and raise him up and make him the Savior of men. We thank you that he is our Savior tonight. We pray for greater faith in him, greater faith to love him, to emulate his works. We do thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us the gift of faith. We know, Father, that in all these things, in the minimal ways that we have obeyed you and in the greater ways we wish to obey you, that we can do nothing unless you give it to us by your grace. So we thank you for the work of your Spirit as well, and ask that it would be greater and greater, that we would be seeing grace upon grace in our own lives, so that glory would come to you, to your Son and Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.